their ass out of it. That's when you know how capturing the magic express. What's up? It's a prison word. Um... Episode of the Enigma Hours. Uh, me, Olaf Phillips, aka Captain Tiki, and I got Captain Dave over here. Reporting for duty, sir. Every Thursday here on KADLP 103.5 FM. And I uh, want to thank everyone who's tuned in to uh, join us as we explore another one of life's little mysteries. You got you to copyright that, man. Trademark, trademark. No, that's from a movie. Uh, it's a famous line from a movie. What movie? Um, it's about this famous wonderkind piano player, and uh, he's going to perform his magus opus, and he collapses in the middle of it and never recovers. Really? And everyone has to take care of him for the rest of He's this mad genius. You know, there's a movie. And, and he says uh, throughout the movie when people ask him, well, well you know, what about that? And he always just say, well, it's another one of life's little mysteries. There's actually a good movie. It's called It's All Gone Pete Tom. And it's about this DJ who goes deaf. And then he has to learn how to DJ based on the vibration because he can't hear. We had, we had uh, a DJ here that was deaf. You know, it took me a while to realize it. Yeah, he could feel the vibrations yeah. of the music. It was pretty cool. Well, we're we're uh, over here every Thursday from 10 p.m. to midnight. I'm keeping Dave up. No, well, it's been a hard week. <laughs> Halloween hard was week. Uh, 
a big effort. Yeah, word on the street is you're a bit of a TV celebrity now. Really? Yeah, you were on the TV. Oh, I think so were you. Yeah, two and a half minutes. Well, that's what everybody had. Oh. So on, uh, we were featured on Good Day Sacramento as the haunted radio station. Because it's haunted. <laughs> and uh, I spent a week. As a matter of fact, before I tear it down, I'd really like you to see it. Okay. I created these dioramas. I had this guy that said he was going to help me with the decorations. He kind of flaked on me. And I went the- down inside my basement. And although I didn't have any Halloween decorations per se, I had a lifetime of artifacts that I had created. Right. You know, I traveled with a circus for two seasons. There you go. And uh, there's other things that happen in my life. So I have the three aspects of magic. Right. You know, magic with a K. Right. Um, stage magic. Right. Do you know at one time you could lock me into a mailbag, handcuff me, tie me up, put me in a mailbag, put a, the bar that goes into yeah. the grommets, two locks, hold the keys, and I could get out. You probably still can. I don't think so. Oh, I, and, and then, that's not uh, what I heard. Uh, and then the last one, the, uh, the most potent magic of all, clown magic. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. No, and the tarot, like the fool. I, no, the fool, <laughs> that's different. I've I got a thing about clowns, man. Yeah, it's the makeup. Uh, I don't like clowns. You know, my uh, <clears throat> my great-grandfather, he was a clown. Oh, really? Yeah, for the Shriner Circus. And uh, doesn't run in the family, huh? No. Boy, the, no clowns So here. I used to work with the Shriners a uh, little bit because, you know, it's like a charitable organization, and I kind of spent my life doing charitable kind of stuff. Yeah, you're a charitable kind of guy. And uh, the first time I went upstairs to the Shriners Masonic Lodge, yeah. And I seen the pillars. Oh, yeah. You know, and stuff. But then I looked in the back room. The and Master there was and the, the Apprentice. There, there was the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> it's just amazing. Well, maybe someday, maybe someday I'll be a Mason. <laughs> we'll see. Well, no, uh, I, you kept asking about the clampers. Oh, yes. And, yes. Um, you know, there's one advantage of hanging out at a museum all the time is things are constantly coming in. Okay. You know, they're starting a new catalog system. You know, the clampers are quite the mystery. Well, I, uh, I, I'm i going to get to that. Okay. So this guy brought in, uh, as soon as I saw it, I kind of knew what it was. Right. And uh, But I didn't know really what it was called. Okay. And it's, it's the staff of relief that's used in all the rituals. Um, for the clampers. Really? And it it has written on it um, all the different places where they met, I guess. Okay. Yankee Hill, Shaw's Flats on right. there. And uh, <clears throat> the guy that brought it in claimed that he thought it was from the 1850s. Uh-huh. But um, there's, you can tell that it's been handled a lot. Right. So that the markings on it start fading. Right. And then um, people kind of just re-etch it back in. <laughs> okay. And you can tell there's like layers. Sure. 
of, uh, but it's the same name, but there's one that's fading out uh-huh. that no one like wrote on top of. Okay. And uh, everybody thinks this is signature, but the only letters you can really make out is D-A. Okay. And I'm saying that's Dane, Ezra Dane. So it isn't from the 1850s. It's more likely from uh, the early 1930s. Still. Uh-oh. What is it, Dave? I don't know. We're pretty active here. Something's happening in the hallway. Dave, go investigate. I'll, I'll investigate. Hold on. Keep talking. Really? Well, I, I'm trying to tell you the story. All right. So uh, we're getting we're getting too many noises and uh, in the hallways. Okay, sorry. So then I also found with, okay, so it's the Staff of Relief. And I think it dates from, so it's a bamboo pole, uh, uh, like a staff, and it has uh, tin on the top and on the bottom. And on the bottom of the staff, it's stuffed with cotton. And they were, what the heck, why would, well, during the rituals, they pass it around. Everybody's got to oh, wrap it on it. the floor twice. Yeah. By the way, there were there was knocking. I know. I heard it. Yeah. There's knocking down the hall. Yeah. So I don't know which of the twenty thousand ghosts we detected, but somebody <laughs> somebody's doing something somewhere. Well, okay, just <laughs> so that's what happens. You're, we're broadcasting from a haunted haunted building. So we invited this guy from the TV set yeah, to we'll come take a in break there. on the clampers for a second. All right. And uh, a, about a week, or I, maybe it was almost two weeks before he came, um, the facility maintenance people came into the studio here and says, just want to let you know that uh, we're here and, and we're going to be looking around, and uh, we're just going to let you know we're here. And uh, I said, uh, what happened? And he said, well, we had somebody come in here because they store boxes here, like old files. Right. And so uh, sometimes somebody comes in and wants to access those files for one reason or the other. Okay. Well, somebody came in here and heard so many noises uh, <laughs> that, that they like, scared them out. Like what we hear every night. Yeah, yeah. especially I come in here like while it's still dark in the morning. We've heard it while we're doing the show. Well, then what uh, – uh, and I joked. I said, well, that's, that's the ghost. And the guy laughs. Okay. And a week before the television guy came, right. they put up a fence. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. It, uh, it's a legit fence. Yeah, now it's a legit fence, right. It's not just a chain across the thing. That's like we're in lockdown or something. Yeah, I know. And, I had uh, to exercise to get here. Uh, there's, um, they put up those uh, no trespassing signs on the walls outside. You know so? No. Yeah. That's legit. So they uh, going to scare the ghosts away. A no trespassing sign. <laughs> no, I know, but uh, they want people to keep away from this place. Well, there was definitely knocking down the hall. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> so it's a haunted anyway, building. So anyway, not right. only. So we have this, and I know Alan Greenfield last week said 
There are no coincidences. You right. got to call them synchronicities. Synchronicities. Uh, but uh, you know, even Jung says that synchronicity is uh, a meaningful coincidence. Right. And I go with the echo thing. So it's yeah, just sure. like kind of a matter of words. But I bowed to him as the uh, doctor. Yes, of, the doc- uh, Dr. Greenfield. Right. That. Uh, so we decided to cut, be real young, young even about it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Brad, uh, I can't compliment him enough. He's my go-to guy. Anytime he finds anything strange and unusual, he uh, puts it aside. Because they're going through all the boxes now. Sure. Yeah, the new They're trying to recatalog system. everything. Uh, they got a new system. Okay. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't ever been broken into. He says, what a coincidence, because I found this. And it said, "Well, on, hang on. I'm still, I'm still at the, at the, at the." Oh, you were out in the hallway. Yeah, I was ghost hunting for a minute. <laughs> okay, so it's used as part of the the staff of relief as an important uh, tool that they use during their uh, the rituals. rituals. And uh, it was, it's a bamboo pole, sort of, you know. Yeah. And it's etched with names of the different mining camps in the area. Right. And it's got a tin top okay. and a tin bottom, but the bottom is like stuffed with cotton. Right, for when you bang it twice. Uh, uh, and I got that, hold that in my hand and examine it. So is that part of the museum now? or uh, Somebody brought a guy named Ed, an old clamper, 80 years old. Right. Brought it in and says, well, I want you know this to be saved. And um, even if it's not from the 1850s, and that proves to be Ezra Danes. So Brad's going to photograph it and then um, put it on the computer. And sh- you know how you yeah. run through the different shades so the sure. writing will come out. And uh, so, if, But if that is uh, signed by Dane, that's a valuable piece of history. Absolutely. And then, oh, and then Brad comes and says, you know, by coincidence, yes. look what I just found in a box. And it was the history and rituals of E. Clampus Vitus. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, a book? A book, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, and I said, hey, uh, can you uh, give me a digital copy of the book? <laughs> can you give me a digital copy? <laughs> Well, I managed to print off a little bit of it. Okay. I'll, I'll be expecting an email later. It says, material for this guide has been gathered from various sources, including liberally plagiarizing, stealing, absconding, purloining, pilfering, looting, and misappropriating the work of others. Excellent. Be that as it may, I believe it is reasonably accurate. It is unsolicited, unofficial, unsanctioned, unblessed, and unapproved. And probably and unappreciated. Like other perfectly good stories, it is subject to spoilage by an eyewitness. <laughs> okay. Credo quie absurdium. Uh, and it's by Judge Frazier, the uh, noble grand humbug um, of the Lucinda Jane Saunders chapter, 1881. Wow. And so... Uh, We'll get into that in a little while. Yeah. Remember you asked me, I said, I made a list of the wonders of Tuolumne County. Right. And um, 
One of them was the brass plate, the Sir Francis Drake. Right. And you yeah, kinda, we talked about that. Yeah, and I says, well, you know, I, uh, I wasn't really prepared to tell the story <laughs> because no. I was just running through that list. Right. Oh, and I found another book published in the 1950, and it's almost all geologic features. Okay. But it is called The 21 Wonders of Tuolumne. Really? I think it was published in like in the 1940s or 50s. Hmm. And uh, there were a couple other geologic features that I I'd kind of forgotten about. And that, so the ditch system that was built during the gold rush. Oh, yeah. It was like this did, engineering did, did, feat. Did they still use parts they of They still use, yeah. right. We have the big ditch. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, Everybody goes fishing at the big ditch. It's this, oh, the ditch keepers. And I think they work for PG&E that go out every year, especially yeah, the old timers. So they used to have a rattlesnake museum uh, where the Jack Douglas Saloon is now. It's called the Stage Driver's Retreat. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> ditch keepers uh, uh, would see what, how big a rattlesnake they'd find because that's where all those rattlesnakes are down by the ditches. Yeah. And, man, I sense. seen a skin of a rattlesnake. Oh, wow. It just, like, went across the he's, wall. It was like, He's holding his hands. It's, like, <laughs> I don't know, four or five feet long. It was just amazing. And, um, but that is a, a natural wonder. And then you, they built, like, just right across the mountains. I mean, like, these flumes. Oh, that, yeah. Uh, I've seen pictures. Like, yeah, it's just amazing. They still exist. We still run off of those systems. Some of them, yeah. Yeah, some of them, yeah. I know the ditch. The ditch is very popular. People go fishing in the ditch. Yeah. They actually have uh, ditch keepers. <laughs> and, uh, That's an occupation. Well, okay. So before you get to the clampers thing, I found something interesting. And I thought you'd enjoy this. I'm sure I will. Okay. This is from Backpack Verse. Okay. These names, I tell you. All right. Ten paranormal swimming holes in California that will make you feel like. You're in the twilight zone. All right. All right. Coming in at number 10. Number 10, Agua Caliente Hot Springs, San Diego. Okay. Number nine, Bass Lake Point Reyes. Number eight, Aztec Falls, Lake Arrowhead. <coughs> that is a mystical place. It, um, that's where uh, down there, uh, by, uh, that's where uh, the Oz, Oscar Janiger, the head head, uh, he made a, a, an arrangement with uh, Sandoz approached him okay. when they first were trying to uh, develop the uses for LSD. Oh, right. Yeah, they were and, trying to sell um, gave it to uh, Oscar Janiger. Um, to, uh, and that's uh, Cary Grant was a frequent right. uh, user. To it. And it all happened there at Lake Arrowhead. Well, there you go. Strange stuff happened there. Number seven, uh, Red Rock Pool, Santa Barbara. Okay. Number six, the Mad River in Neyland. Okay, I've never heard of that one. Uh, number five, Big Bear Lake, West Shore Beach, Big Bear Lake. Okay. Big Bear Lake, Big Bear Lake. Right. Makes sense. Number four, Three Sisters Falls, Pine Valley. Okay. Number three, <clears throat> mind you, most of these seem to be down south. <coughs> the Bridge to Nowhere, East Fork, San Gabriel River, Azusa. Boy, just the name alone that gets me interested. The Bridge to Nowhere. The huh? Bridge to Nowhere. Number two, and this is what I love about Tuolumne County, the Tuolumne River. The whole river. Their whole river, Tuolumne County. Yeah. 
<clears throat> the faint of heart needs stay away from the waterfalls at this location, which has some of the best swimming holes in Northern California. Witnesses say that you'll see red eyes staring out after twilight. One visitor reports that she was swimming, swimming and looked up into the falls to three sets of evil red eyes staring out. When she screamed to her friends, they swam over and also saw the eyes before a wailing sound chilled them to the bone. On the way home, she advises that she continued to see eyes in, in the windows, even though her friends did not. She b still believes they are waiting to pounce on her at any time. And then the number one is Rockpool Swimming Hole Calabasas. Yeah, you know. I so we're num number two. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Huh? Yeah. We're always number two. But hey, that's pretty darn good. I can take you to that spot. And the cool thing about that, those falls is that, well, they probably aren't falling now, but uh, when they're really running good, uh -huh. you can, there's like, it's not a cave really, but it sort of is. You can get behind the falls and oh, okay. look out. So that's a real deal because I used to do that. So the red eye she was seeing was probably coming from that behind the, falls. behind the falls. But I never, uh, well, yeah, I have been there at night, but I wouldn't get up behind the falls at night. That's just something you did during the day. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good idea. No, but it looked cool, like looking through the water. And oh, yeah. Distorted. I like to do that when I, when I encounter a waterfall. Yeah. I've had some experiences on, uh, on the, but nothing I could actually share on the road here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll leave it at that. It's one of life's little mysteries, right. Dave. <laughs> well, you know, I recently I've had a job, uh, and it's for the state of California, and I'm going up and down the Tuolumne watershed recording right. the sound of water. <laughs> so, a lot of good. sound of water. A lot of water, water a lot of, sounds. A lot of different water. <laughs> number two, coming in at number two. The entire Tuolumne the River. The Tuolumne River. <laughs> Not not some bend in the river, not some falls. It's the whole river. Yeah, well, you know, there's some great uh, <clears throat> things. They they had those depressions. God's bathtubs is what they call. You know, I used to I used when I was a Boy Scout, I used to go to a camp called Wolfboro, and I actually worked there one summer, which was kind of weird because it was like almost three months of living in a tent with with very little power, and. Uh, <clears throat> we had a we had a kind of natural water slide system up the hill from us. So we'd all hike up there and there was a huge swimming hole. And then there were these like pockets. It was like a water slide water slide. That was kind of cool. Well, you know, the in places the water flows over these huge granite granite rocks. Oh yeah. And uh there's one really nice swimming hole uh down there and uh they filmed do you ever see that girl, or that movie, Bad Girls? It's an old Western. I think so. Uh, but it's got like Drew Barrymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who else? Barry Steinberger, maybe? No, I don't. I mean, Barry Steenburgen? Yeah, whatever her name is. <laughs> okay. I don't think she was one of them. But anyway, they were all swimming uh, down there. And I used to have a job taking work crews down there to clean up the trails and stuff. And I go, and the guy stops me, and he goes, you can't go in here. And I said, I'm the cleanup guy, you know? I always come here. He says, sorry, we're filming a movie. They film a lot of movies here. And uh, 
Or they did. Yeah, well, they were all swimming naked. That's skinny dipping. And the only people that got to see it later on, there was another clean cr- cr- cleanup crew that comes from the prison. <laughs> they sat up on the hill and watched the whole thing. Uh, uh, <laughs> Break time. Uh, All right. So I, I, I discovered that, so I needed to read it to you. Yeah. I think I have heard that. Yeah. The whole river's ha- haunted. Suck. Come on up, folks. <laughs> it's a 14 Wonderland, man. So you want to hear about the brass plate? Yes. Okay. All right, I'm going to get comfortable. All right, the brass plate engraved with Francis Drake claimed to California. That became the state's greatest historic treasure when it was found and authenticated in the late 1930s. Authenticated even? Yeah. Uh, the plate became the centerpiece for the 1939-1940 Golden Gate International Exposition on Treasure Island. No way. And his photographs was featured in histories, textbooks, and popular magazines. I, he, think, I think I saw it when I was in a I, uh, yeah, elementary I, school. That's right. Me yeah. too. We actually took a field trip and seen the I didn't plate. see it. It was in a book. Oh, yeah, no, it's in the textbook. Yeah, it was in the textbook. I actually went and visited it when I was in elementary school. I remember it. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it it was like in this glass case over in UC Berkeley. And, uh, yeah, it made the cover of National Geographic. (laughs) Thousands of metal foil copies circulated around the world. One was presented by Lady Bird Johnson uh, when she dedicated Point Reyes. Yeah. And uh, several presented the Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, she didn't just get one. She on got a, several. Yeah, well, she came on official occasions. But uh, so that was California's greatest historic treasure. But right. the plate became the state's greatest hoax when it was retested four years later and proved to be fake. Oh, dear. So, this is the story. Yeah, they didn't discover it until 1977 uh, during the 400th anniversary of Drake's supposed stop in California. And uh, they said, hey, let's just have it retested because, you know, the testing in the 1930s is a little different. It was bad. Right, it was bad. <laughs> and Obviously. The guy, well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself on this story because there were more than so, kind of fill you in, uh, people that don't know. So, so, Francis Drake, he was a pirate, a privateer. Privateer, because he was legitimized by the crowd. Right. But uh, he explored, he, he, he met, went on a world tour, went around the world. Uh, and he explored the West Coast, and they thought that he landed at what's now called Drake's Bay. That's why I call it Drake's Bay in 1579. Yeah, he was... He was uh, <clears throat> exploring the coast, but also uh, raiding Spanish ships. Galleons <laughs> while he was at it. Yeah. He decided that the pickings might be better across the Pacific, coming out of like Veracruz. Right. And I mean, and, the, and people were, yeah, they were all out for glory, God, and uh, gold. Crown. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the crown. The, yeah. So, uh, so, in a contemporary account, uh, somebody that was there, one of his crew members wrote, you know, wrote a book, memoirs, 
And he said that Drake put up a plate as a monument of being there. But what he did was made a deal with the uh, local Indians, and they didn't, thought the Indians, the Indians gave him gifts freely. Right. Yeah, they and, actually had a good relationship with them. Right. But uh, they couldn't understand the language, and when Drake gave gifts back, what he was really doing was buying Northern California. <laughs> California. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, this is the first instance of uh, the colonialism uh, yeah. and interaction with indigenous peoples yeah. by the white man. I mean, this is it. And uh, so it claimed her majesty's and successor's right and title to the kingdom. And then it had uh, the date of the landing, Drake's name, and the queen's portrait on a coin. Okay. So on April 6th, 1937, Hubert Bolton, he was the professor of, Cal you know, Bolton's, Bolton's Hall in yeah, UC Bolton Berkeley? Hall, sure. Yeah, well, that's named after this guy's professor of California history, and he was the director of the Bancroft Library. Oh, that's and interesting. He made a public announcement at a luncheon meeting of the California Historical Society, and it was held at Sir Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco, that one of the world's long-lost historical treasures had been found. And the authenticity of the tablet seems beyond all reasonable doubt. So it was one of the, Drake's plate was one of the most sensational discoveries in California history. I bet. It made headlines around the world and grew, uh, you know, Bolton University of California was on the map, right? Yeah. Well, come to find out. The whole play was intended just to be a joke, okay. kept among members of... Eclampus Vetus. That's right. So people that don't know, the ECV is what uh, people call it, uh, originated right. supposedly during the gold rush, but was revived in the 1930s by George Ezra Dane. And he also wrote this book called uh, Ghost Town. It's about Columbia. Okay. And it, it, uh, to me, it rivals Mark Twain. Um, there's one great story about uh, a lice competition. And <laughs> <laughs> lice competition. Well, I really do live in the right place. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, but essentially, the Clampers are, what, an American heritage preservers. Yeah. They, it's, it's, they, they go around placking. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a Western. It's not American. It's Western. Western and Western history preservationists. Yeah, but yeah, they do. They they go placking. Yeah, that's, that's what they call it. It's yeah. placking, and then after. Oh, the, I didn't know that's what they call yeah, it. Yeah, and then after they finish black, and they have doings. Oh yes, the doings. I've heard stories about the people die in the doings. <laughs> I've heard of the people have died at though. So. Yeah, they described themselves as dedicated to the erection of historical plaques, the protections of widows and orphans, especially the widows. Yes. And having true. a grand time while accomplishing these purposes. <clears throat> so their motto is Credo Quia Absurdium, which means I believe because it is absurd. <laughs> I like that. And by the way, if you ever stumble across the bar, I think it's always a bar. That's the Hall of Ovations. No, no, no. no. 
If you ever stumble into a bar and yeah. you see ECV, it will be somewhere behind the bar. That means that they meet there. Yeah, and anytime they meet, wherever they meet, and it's almost always a bar, you're totally always right. A bar. And it's called the Hall of Ovations. Okay. And uh, so sometime in 1933, some clampers decided to have fun and play a prank on their friend, Herbert Bolton. All these guys, they were all professors. They all belonged to the California Historical Society. I mean, it was only a historical nerd that would try to revive the clampers. Yeah. All right? I or mean, or it, it, it's historical nerds that, that go placking. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. the plaques, yeah. there are actually websites that are dedicated to tracking where all the plaques are. And uh, I think the clampers in California are the ones who put up the most. Hundreds. Oh, yeah. Hundred, probably more like thousands. Uh, I remember one time, and I think it was up Mount Shasta or somewhere, but I, I was a young buck, and uh, we're climbing mountains, and we're going on the trail, right? And we go up over this ridge, and it was a really challenging ridge. I mean, even at my young age. Right. And we got over to the other side, and here's this big pile of rocks with a plaque. <laughs> and, uh, in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. That's and it's dedication. A, it's a fountain, a drinking fountain, and it says, the drinks are on us. <laughs> the clappers. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that That's was awesome. awesome. That, that is awesome. <coughs> so this guy, um, Bolton, uh, he was obsessed with Drake's Plague. You know, they had translated uh, or came out with an edition of uh, his journals and, you know. Sure. And this guy was historical, California. So he was obsessed with it. So much so that uh, he, him and his students would go out to Drake's Bay and search for the thing. That's oh, how wow. obsessed he was uh, uh, with this thing. So uh, It's like me in Evergreen Aviation. So uh, everyone that knew him knew of his obsession with Drake's play. So what do you do? You make a you fake one. You make one and plant it. So, so you can find it on one of his expeditions. Right. And sure. it'd be like, you know, joke, joke's on you. So uh, uh, they got an a Alameda ship worker to make the plate. Then they had this artist guy, George Clark, carve the inscription. And they even, uh, and there's, anybody kind of even thought about it would know it wasn't real because it was signed GC on the plaque by the artist, George Clark. <laughs> okay. And on the back, they put, uh, the clampers painted the initials ECV. But ECV on the back. But it was in fluorescent paint that only could be seen under light. a black light. Oh, okay? sneaky. So they planted the plate for one of the students to find. Unfortunately, what happened was somebody else found it first. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy was going duck hunting, and his chauffeur was waiting for nothing to do, and he's just kind of kicking some rocks around and found the plate. He thought, well, this is kind of interesting. So he put it in the car, back of the car, and said he'd look at it later. So uh, they went away, and then a few weeks later, he's cleaning the car, the chauffeur, you know, is cleaning the limousine, finds that plate and looks at it and goes, you know, this ain't nothing, and just throws it off the side of the road. 
Okay. So about three years later, this guy has a flat tire. And he pulls off the side of the road, and he's changing his tire, and he looks, and he sees this thing there, goes over and investigates, and finds this plate. Well, he's a little more interested than uh, that other guy. And he's kind of like rubbing on it and stuff because it had like this patina on it, you know, sure. like all sure. corroded. Well, yeah. And uh, he's rubbing on it, and he makes out the words Drake. So then he takes it to UC Berkeley. Bolton sees it. <coughs> he hears about it, sees it. And goes crazy. I bet. You know, he's, this is it. This is the main event. But what is funny about it is the guys that perpetuated the joke on him forgot all about it. It had been three years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or well, longer. Also, you know, at some point, you know, it's, it's a joke, but it's like it's gone too far. Now you don't want to expose it as a joke. Right. That's exactly what happened. Uh, they didn't realize that it had it finally come into Bolton's possession. And uh, uh, the guy paid like, I don't know, like $5,000 for it. But in today's money, right? I mean, that's like a small fortune, right? Sure. When was this? Uh, 30, well, the plate was made in 33, so about 36. I will 30, get you the inflation-adjusted rate. Continue. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you're right. So it started off that um, <clears throat> it was uh, a little inside joke that they could laugh about over dinner or at a clamper meeting, right? Right. But it had escaped their control. All of a sudden, this guy came out and without any of the clampers knowing about it, makes this public announcement that this thing's authentic, right? Well, uh, these are all the head honchos at UC Berkeley and the California Historical Society and stuff. By the way, it'd be worth $106,871.18. Right, so, uh, I mean, careers are in jeopardy, right? <laughs> And because they all belonged to this little small group of history enthusiasts, but they had all become enmeshed in a hoax, right? Right. So how are they going to tip off Bolton that it's a fake without them revealing what they had done, without confessing straight out? Right. You know, they're just going to kind of give them a kick under the table and say, wake up, man. This, Catch a clue. Yeah, this thing... So one of the first things they did is they got this guy, Edwin Grabhorn. Grabhorn Press, that's a real press. What a name. But it published books on Western history. So okay. it was the book that a uh, publisher that all these guys read, right? So they issued a letter. And this was just the greatest thing. Uh, I got, here it is, here's the letter. Consolidated Brass and Novelty Company. At the Okay, so... The name of Sir Francis Drake's ship is the Golden Hind, right? Right. Well, this it says at the sign of the Golden Behind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Late the brass bottom. Um, dear friend, and this is dated 20 September 1937, so it was 1937. 
Dear friend, I am sure you will be interested in our special line of brass plates. These plates have a beautiful finish. We make them in all sizes and shapes and in a variety of scripts and dates. We have a very attractive Elizabethan line, which we are selling at greatly reduced prices to introduce our goods. We can supply these according to size for 50 cents upward, wow. lead plates from 25 cents upwards. So do you wish to make your hometown famous? Give us a ring. Yours verily, truly. So, I mean, that's like uh, they send that to Bolton. That's a hint. Hey, this thing might not be real, right? I don't you got know. To- I don't think he's going to get it. He didn't get it. Yeah, no. It's but this is from the Consolidated Brass. Uh, <laughs> a novelty company. Okay, <clears throat> now here's... First, Ezra Dane actually lived in Columbia, but he was a lawyer, so he spent most of his time in San Francisco. But his mom and his family lived here in Columbia. And, um, but uh, I was told he stayed away because uh, he was kind of like a milk toast, hen-pecked husband, and stayed and tried to stay away from his wife. (laughs) Okay. All right. That's a love affair. So about seven weeks after that, so uh, University of California at Berkeley geologist and paleontologist and prominent clamper, uh, V.L. Vanderhoof, he used a cold chisel as an engraving tool to create an inscribed brass plate, uh, just like the one the guy had found, right? He's not going to get it. And, well, this is a clamper ceremony in Tuolumne City. All right? So it's provided over by G. Ezra Dane. He was the instigator. But uh, Chief William Fuller of the Miwok tribe, he was, uh, he was a clamper, too. Really? They were good buddies. So, uh, and the Miwoks were... Uh, the people, they were coast Miwoks, but they were the people that Sir Francis Drake right. had uh, run into. So uh, on this plaque, they revoked Drake's claim. So what did he call it? Nova Abion or something like that? New Albion. Yeah. And, and Fuller's text says, Be it known unto all men by these presents, whereas in the year of grace, 1579, the create high O of the Miwoks was seduced by the buccaneer Francis Drake to deliver this land of Nova Abion to Elizabeth Ye Queen and her successors forever. Now therefore I, the present chief and high O of the Miwok nation, do now revoke said grant on grounds of deceit, fraud, and failure to occupy said domain Done in the presence of E. Clampus Vitus, May 29th, 1937, William Fuller. And uh, what's, what's cool about that is when they had the ceremony, to, you can go up there today. When we make our little history book, yeah. uh, we'll direct people up there. It's, uh, the plaque is still up there um, embedded into this big stone. And you can still go see it. Where? At, uh, at the Tuolumne uh, Miwok Reservation. The res up there in Tuolumne. Really? Yeah, it's right there oh. by the roundhouse. Okay. Nobody notices it. 
Not even the people there. Yeah, I went at uh, the first time I was looked for it. I actually went during one of the big times. Yeah. And I'm asking all the people that actually live there. <clears throat> and they go, we don't know. <laughs> you know what I, was, I said? Well, was, you know, we, were, we went over to Columbia College. And we were parking, driving through the parking lot. And it was like, that's a roundhouse. Oh, yeah, they have yeah, a little yeah. village out there, yeah. Yeah. And, and you can go show. on the walk? Did you go on the walk? Yeah. And they had the grinding yeah. stones and everything. We're like, what is this? Um, yeah. Uh, Need some work. <laughs> it's kind of beat up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know. When I was over at Coyote Hills, I had a re- recreation. And uh, it, you know, it gets beat up after a while. Yeah. We actually tried to make a... Uh, one of those Thule balsas, the boats. Oh, that's tough. And uh, we've seen a like film of a native guy. The the Modoc ones? Uh, well, no, they were, uh, no, those, they're Ohlone people. Oh, the Ohlone one. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. But we've seen, and this guy was, I think they, as any place that had Thule's, they made those balsas. Yeah. Because uh, we've seen a little movie to learn how to do it, and it was a guy from Lake Titicaca. Yeah. Doing, and... He did it by himself, and he's on his back with his feet like, but you bundle these two leaves together, and then you right. bundle the bundles together. Yeah, that's how you do it. And uh, <laughs> it, we watched this guy, and it looked like it just took him a day, maybe. You know, he just did it, boom, boom, boom. It was a little 20-minute film. He was done with a boat. <laughs> it took like six of his three days. <laughs> you know, I was watching, there's a TV show called Alone. Where you they send these guys up to the Canadian Arctic, they send them in in late summer, going into winter, and whoever can last the longest they get a million bucks. And this one guy, he hacked, he used an axe, and he hacked out a tree, and he spent he spent probably a week burning out a canoe, like old school. Oh yeah, no, yeah. yeah, that's old school. That's yeah. where you got trees and you burn them out. You burn them out. Yeah, yeah these are ones made out. No, of no, I, I, of I know it's. I know. But I've seen both. I've seen examples of what. But I try. I never try to burn out a tree. But <laughs> <laughs> it takes I did a while. try to make a tule balsa. How did it work out for you? Uh, you know what I didn't realize about those things is they really aren't meant to float. They're like buoyancy. It's like a life jacket. You sit on them. And then once they get waterlogged, <laughs> they, they start sink. going down, but they don't sink all the way. Yeah, no, you're so you're up to you like your waist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can you can manipulate around pretty good. Oh yeah, no, it's it's like riding a riding one of those uh, noodles. Yeah, you won't it's like s- riding a noodle. Yeah, you <laughs> won't sink. You won't sink, but it's not, it doesn't float. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, good for you, Dave. <laughs> Dave is an adventurous youth. Yeah, You're like, wait a minute. I was 70 when I did that. Yeah. So then, uh, so that's our, our connection right there with this whole scandal. Yeah. And, oh, what was great about this thing when they had the ceremony. And these, this is how trickster these people are. So Chief Fuller, William Fuller, Bill Fuller, announces that... Uh, uh, they're going to enjoy traditional night, and they're going to have, and he made it sound as disgusting as possible, something like, you know, uh, grasshopper stew <laughs> or something, you know, that they were going to okay. have. 
and then everybody's going to be traditionally sleep on the ground, <laughs> and uh, everybody that kind of wasn't in the know, I guess, goes, well, you know, it's great having the ceremony and everything, but... Uh, See you I think, later. I think we're going to go down the Sonorian and book a room, right? Yeah. <coughs> so after all those people left, they brought out the barbecue hot dogs or <laughs> roasted hot dogs. And according to what I read, it was a Portuguese jazz band they brought okay. out. <coughs> so that was great stuff. So the next thing they did to try to let this guy know that that plate was a fake. At this point, he's still not clued in. No, he's still not getting it. Right. He's so convinced. It was his lifelong passion to find this thing, and nothing's going to convince him, it seems like, that this isn't the real deal, right? Right. <clears throat> so then they come up with this thing called the Preposterous History. It's actually a little book. <laughs> that okay. they put out, okay? And even before the preposterous booklet was printed, Dane sent Bolton a promotional flyer soliciting pre-orders, and printed in the flyer was a comment saying, as history thunders down the quarters of time, the name of E. Clampus Vitus and the Francis Drake plate will be forever joined. I mean, that's like a confession, yeah, but he's not going to get it. He didn't get it. No. So then they came out this thing called the Preposterous Book of Brat. Ye Here's the book. It was uh, printed by the Clampers. The title of the book is Ye Preposterous Book of Brass, which includes a full and complete history of Ye Plate of Brass set upon our fair shores by Ye Antient Buccaneer France, Frank Drake. The unnamed editor and author of uh, this little booklet, History of Ye Plate of Brass. Uh, I mean, they said it was anonymous, but you know who actually wrote it? No. University of California paleontologist and clamper, Dr. Charles Lewis Camp. He's a famous guy. I've heard of him. So the book opens with the front piece drawing of Ye Create Hi-O. You know, which, which was mentioned, too, in the plate that Bill Fuller did out. Uh, and then the plate is hanging across this guy's chest. And then the letters ECV is printed right on the thing, okay? And you don't understand. Well, maybe you understand, but <clears throat> when anytime they say the word pure brass, right. it's italicized. And back in the 1930s, uh, uh, when you said that somebody was pure brass, that meant he was full of you-know-what. Right. That he was a phony baloney. And, uh, <laughs> and he's still not getting it. And he's, no. And, uh, I mean, they're straight out saying. And even in the booklet, it says, makes a suggestion, and it's, and it's done as a parody, a spoof, right? But it's right. just filled with all these hints. And they make a suggestion that the use of ultraviolet fluorescence and infrared illumination would bring out the faint phosphorentin outline of three letters, ECV. He's still not going to get it. <laughs> so at the end of the book, it says, we should now reclaim the plate 
as the rightful property of our ancient order, ECV. So, I mean, that's like straight coming out saying. And he's still not going to get he, it. He didn't get it. So this thing, uh, uh, like we said, uh, was uh, on display for, what, four decades, 40 years. Everybody thought it was authentic, the real deal. And, but when the 400th anniversary of Drake's um, California visit. And the, and the Clampers gave up trying to. Yeah, no, they said let fate take its course. Yeah. Uh, by the time they found out, uh, authenticated that it was a hoax, yeah. all those people were dead anyway, see? And oh, as uh, Dane committed suicide. Did he? Yeah, uh, kind of right after this. Really? And I've heard different stories as to why. I mean, I automatically speculated, well, maybe it had something to do with, with this. <coughs> but I was told different. So I don't know what the story was. I'm not in the guy's mind, but he committed suicide right after the incident. Oh, wow. And everybody should get that book. Uh, it's called Ghost Town. Ghost Town. And it's about Columbia. But it's tall tales. But all tall tales have a gram of truth in them. And so it does talk about uh, the life. And everybody, all the old timers contributed to the book. Right. So you figure this book came out in the 1930s, I guess? Yeah. And uh, he's talking to all the old-timers, all the 80-year-old guys and stuff, see? Yeah. And uh, getting stories from them. Mm -hmm. And to give you an idea, this has nothing to do with his book, but when Woody Guthrie came through here, um, Woody Guthrie came through here and stayed here, I, I think his aunt or something okay. uh, lived out here. <clears throat> but he was talking to one of the miners, and he said... I just love these people's sense of humor. So the guy... Uh, yeah, it's a lot of pranking. Okay. Yeah, and so Woody Guthrie goes, uh, how long you been here to an old-timer? And uh, the old-timer shows him the hill, says, see them trees? And those trees are hundreds of years old, right? <laughs> he says, I came here when then things were just little bushes. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the type of... And, uh, well, anyway... Well, I'll tell you what. We have six minutes till the top of the hour. Why don't we go to break early? Okay, no, let me finish. Okay, finish this. Finish the story, and then when we come back from break, yes, we'll um, get into the uh, history and rituals. I yes. Of, of uh, this is a big show, people. This this stuff. This is. Not common. I think we're probably the only show that's ever talked about this. You know. Well, that no, uh, we've. Uh, it's kind of co common knowledge about the plate of brass. No, no, not the but, plate of brass. The, oh, you mean uh, the, the actual the history rights and yeah. order of? Uh, yeah. uh, we'll see how far we get in. <laughs> well, no, some of the stuff I wouldn't even. I don't know if I'd read it on the air. I we'll, would. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll okay, out. so, uh, so they're going to have the 400th anniversary of Drake's California visit. That was in uh, 1977, or. Whenever it was, okay? So they thought, hey, let's uh, re-examine the plate, you know, with right. modern science. And they declared it a hoax. And, but it wasn't until 2002 that everybody pieced together the story about the hoax, uh, who perpetuated the hoax. So there was one old clamper guy, 
And he reprinted reprint it because everybody's forgotten about ye preposterous book of brass. Yeah, I'm trying to find a copy of it. I can't seem to find it. And um, so in his, uh, the museum has one, I think. Okay. Uh, so in his introduction to the reprint, he says, Clampers have been hoaxing the suckers for a long, long time and are masters of the game. All right. That's a good place, dude. All right, so we're going to take a little break, peeps, and uh, we'll be back. And at the sign of the golden behind. (laughs) At the sign of the golden behind. All right, you are listening to the Enigma Hours with me, Captain Tiki, Ola Phillips. I got Captain Dave over here. We're uh, exploring another one of life's little mysteries. Yeah, we are. Okay, here's some pagan folk witch songs. We'll be back.
All right. We're back. This is the uh, Enigma Hours with Captain Tiki Mule Phillips. I got Captain Dave over here. And we're just about ready to enter the wonderful world of Clamperdom. Clamperdom. So when you think of uh, uh, clampers, what, what do you think of? Oh, I mean, you, you've been up here for a while. I mean, like the first image I have in my mind, they always do the parades. And they're all decked out in their red shirts, goofy hats with uh, sashes and pins all over <laughs> themselves when they dress up. Yeah, I think I think it's somebody wearing jeans and a red a red T-shirt with a funky hat, a lot of maybe a vest with a lot of pins on it. That's exactly holding right. a beer. <laughs> That's right. So uh, they try to emulate uh, the old days. And, uh, you know, you strip away all the romance of the minor. It was a tough life. It was a really tough life. And these people came over here thinking they were going to get rich. Right. And that was the exception, not the rule. Oh, right. And all these people that had, like, a lot of times, like, legit professions over in the rest of the states. Oh, yeah. No, they gave it all up. They gave it all up for black back-breaking labor. You know, it's, Our, it's funny you mention that. You know, I'm a big fan of Gold Rush and, like, Bering Sea Gold. And it's like you watch what these guys go through to try to get this this gold. They're, they're like, va- basically vacuuming it up off the bottom of the ocean. And they're down 30, 40 feet with a hose vacuuming the bottom of the ocean. And it's like the, the hot water cuts out. They're, like, hypothermic. Their airlines get get clogged, you know. It's it's so dangerous, and and they come up and they're like, I got five ounces of gold, and they're like, five ounces were ten grand. It's like that that sounds like a lot, but then you factor in all the fuel and the time. Oh, uh, my dad owned property, and it was the Kincaid mine, and it still had the mining heads and stuff. Yeah, uh, the caps on the air breathers and stuff. The whole bottom of it was tunneled. But what happened to them is they hit a uh, spring. Oh, flooded it. Fl- it. It flooded it, and they couldn't keep it drained out. So the neighbor uh, has, like, all these tules, little swamp region uh, on the property next to my dad's. So my dad's well went out, and they started drilling, and they bring up these core samples right. uh, when they uh, are looking for water drilled of a well. And uh, he takes me into the shed, and he has the, coal, uh, the, the core samples laid out. And there was this thing that was pure gold. It was, like, huge. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. I don't know whatever happened to that thing. I don't think, you know what, I don't know what happened to that thing. That's a good, that's one of life's little mysteries. That is one of life's little mysteries. <laughs> but anyway, he tried to convince the neighbors uh, to go in with them to... Because he lived like up on the hill, and he thought if he tunneled in through the side, he'd be able to avoid the uh, the water table. Yeah, and <laughs> they wouldn't go for it because he priced it out. And there's very much truth in the saying: it takes a gold mine to work a gold mine. That's true. And so back in these old days, these guys' life was short and it tough. Was violent. Violent, short, and tough. And then when a, uh, a Diggins would work out, they'd have to 
it's like a nomadic existence too. You're carrying your donkeys with your supply from place to place. That image of the old miner with his donkey traveling from place to place, there's truth in that, okay? Uh, so they wanted to get entertainment wherever they could, right? Right. <laughs> so uh, a good prank or a practical joke, joke was just uh, what they needed, and that's what they pulled on themselves. It created a, a, a this certain sense of humor, uh, 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 entertainment that they would do amongst themselves. Yeah, they pulled tricks on one another. <clears throat> Remember that Deschau story about the trick bed? Oh yes, on that guy's wedding night. Yeah, I yeah. mean that's perfect. That's gold rush. Yeah, gold so, rush uh, humor. Right. So by 1850. There's already, what are the two main fraternal organizations? It's the Masons and the Oddfellows. Okay, they were, right. uh, they came in, as a matter of fact, Colonel Stevenson's uh, New York Regiment, they were mostly Masons that came in there. And so anybody of influence were members of these orders, right? Right. And uh, these guys, have you ever seen Mason decked out in their outfits? Oh, yeah. I mean, they got the sashes sure, the and uh, those tri-coned hats with the big feathers sticking out of them and cool little, yeah. man, these wool coats with the epaulets and all decked out and stuff, right? And, uh, but you know what? Uh, most of the miners ended up not really digging that because uh, it was so strict, only the elite. It's, it was for the right. elite, not the average working guy. So, uh, uh, so in 1851, this is uh, started in McQualamy Hill, supposedly. Okay. This is the story that uh, they started the fraternal organization, the Ancient and Honorable Order of Eclampus Vitus, and uh, the uh, they dedicated themselves to the protection of widows and orphans, especially the widows. Okay. <laughs> But, uh, and in their credo, it says, I believe because it is absurd, because they found themselves in this absurd situation. Yeah. Seeing the elephant was the joke. Right. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, it's completely absurd. It's like you're digging, you're digging, you're digging, you're digging. Yeah. What, what? For what? Yeah. And, uh, I left home for this. <laughs> and you're in so deep, you can't get out. Right. You're stuck there. So unless you find uh, uh, your gold. Um, yeah, it's the only way out. Right. So it was, uh, having this order was a way that they could endure. And right. uh, made, you, it, made it livable. And, and also there was no um, uh, health care plan in right. the gold mines, no. right? So anytime anybody got hurt or anything, if you were right. a fellow clamper, you got taken care of. Yeah, that okay? makes sense. So it was like a charitable organization as well. And, uh, and one thing I kind of found out is if you were like a traveling salesman or something like that, if you weren't a clamper, they wouldn't do business with you. Interesting. So these people stuck together. Sure. And, uh, but it, they all made it like a joke. Uh, everyone had titles. 
wasn't right. just a few. Everyone that became a clamper had a, had a title. <laughs> and uh, they started bedecking themselves with all these badges and stuff. But they didn't have any money. They didn't have anything. So they took tin cans okay. and flattened them out and pinned them on themselves. There and, you go. and it was known as wearing the tin. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, clappers today wear the red shirts because of the red union suits. All the, there was only certain supplies that these miners could buy. Right. And, yeah, uh, it wasn't like there wasn't a lot of fashion going on. Right. So you, uh, everyone had those red union suits. So uh, here's a section from uh, the book, the history of the uh, Eclampus Vetus. Yes. So it says just how Eclampus Vetus came to be is a matter of some conjecture and sometimes subject to a variety of versions and interpretations well suited. To the occasion at hand. <laughs> That's an open-ended. <laughs> <laughs> Legend tells of his creation in 4004 BC, but most of the supporting historical records and tablet archives were destroyed in a cataclysmic event many centuries ago when a huge comet passed near the Earth and wreaked havoc on our planet okay. before being trapped in our solar system. All right. This catastrophic celestial passing was described by the late Emmanuel Velikovsky. Really? In, in his books, Worlds in Collision. He's, there, he's quoting Velikovsky. Uh, yes, he is. Oh, my God. Uh, so you know about this cat, huh? I know about Velikovsky, yeah. Yeah, Okay. Uh, I guess that's the subject for the next show, huh? All right, we can do that. With a comet identified as what we now know to be the planet Venus. The surviving records are thought to have been lost in the fire that destroyed the great libraries of Alexandria. Of course. It, uh, in the 3rd century B.C. What is, uh, what is, I guess that is what is known, is that in 1845, a tavern hotel and stable owner in Lewisport, West Virginia, named Ephraim B., received a commission authorizing him to extend the work and influence of the ancient and honorable order of Eclampus Vitus from the emperor of China. Wow. The commission was handed to Mr. B. by Mr. Caleb Cushing, who had returned from China in 1844 while serving the government in establishing diplomatic and trade relations in the Far East, Eclampus Vitus, or ECV as it is also known, succeeded and flourished where other orders failed. For it was B's belief that any man of upstanding character who was of age could join, unencumbered by the restrictions of other fraternal organizations. Uh, says the, <laughs> the route uh, that he took is subject to debate uh, he supposedly arrived in Sacramento in late October. Others believed he left, uh, left Missouri with a, a clamper companion and settled in Hangtown. And that's now called Placerville. Okay. And I was then, about to ask you that. Uh, but where, uh, no matter what story you, you do, they supposedly ended up in Moak Hill, McQualamy Hill. And McQualamy Hill was the uh, first... Uh, 
a kind of gold rush city um, because it was started by Colonel Stevenson, who didn't, they came out here in 1846. Uh, they were part of the New York Regiment, um, and they were all, President Polk, you know, this Western expansion thing, you right. know, Manifest Destiny. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> they sent out, um, it wasn't an army. What it was was uh, farmers. and Like a militia? No, it wasn't a militia at all. It was people to settle the land. Oh, okay. Uh, these were people, uh, they had all the different pro professions represented. Oh, right. Um, in They're order just settlers. They were settlers, purposely sent out here to settle the land so we could lay claim to it. Okay. And then they got here, and right after they got here, it was the gold rush. Right. And uh, so Moak Hill was one of the first. It was started by Colonel Stevenson, who curiously enough also started the city of uh, New York of the Pacific, is what he called it, which is now called Pittsburgh, California. Oh, okay. And the reason why that was important is because it's where uh, the Carquina Strait, yeah. you come in from the bay so you can go upriver. Up the Sacramento River. Uh, to Stocktown. <clears throat> right. Um, to get supplies. And Sacramento. And yeah. Boy, when I was a kid living on the rivers there and one of those big ships came by you. Oh, it's surprising it, what it, they run up the Sacramento River. And uh, it Huge looks ships. like you're moving because nothing that big could actually be moving as it slides past you. Well, I know. It's unreal. And it seems like you're moving. Yeah, it is. So regardless of what, which path Zumwalt took, McQualamy Lodge... Uh, 1001 first opened its doors in September 1851. Okay, now some claim that it was Sierra City, some claim it was Downeyville, but it's generally accepted it started McQualamy. Uh, let's see, I don't want to just sit and read this thing. Uh, so it was a fun-loving group that provided diversion and camaraderie in what was more often than not a hazardous life. Okay. So, <clears throat> you know, the people that started uh, the Clampers in the 1930s, that was Ezra Dane, Carl Wheat, and supposedly they had found references. You know, they were historians. That's what they did. And... Uh, they started finding references to this ancient order. Right. Okay. This is in the late 20s, early 30s. And uh, so they actually went up and visited one of these old guys. And I think it was up in Hangtown. Okay. And it was like one of the original clamper dudes. Oh, wow. And uh, he had still had, I guess, this. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so it's all kind of based on what Ezra Dane and we Dane and we uh, says. Uh, I I don't know how much was invented by them, uh, but anyway, clamper meetings. Okay, here here we're back to uh, this book here. Clamper meetings were held in the Hall of Comparative Ovations, and that was commonly in the back room of a saloon. And, and you mentioned that you go and you see in the back of the bar. Yeah, they're marked. Uh, they're marked, right. <clears throat> yeah, all the clamper bars are marked. You'll but, find ECV in there somewhere. Um, 
but sometimes there were more people. There were some of these little mining camps that everyone <laughs> was clamber, you know? Imagine. So they couldn't fit in the saloons. They'd have to find, sometimes they met in barns. <coughs> uh, uh, sometimes, I think that one in Murphy's, that was actually constructed <laughs> to be a hall of comparative ovations. But uh, it says, uh, as it, they put it here in the book, they call them libation emporiums. <laughs> libation emporiums. Where they reach oh, stage where they reach stages of well-being, <laughs> free yes. from pain and distress. <laughs> okay. The brethren were called together by the tinny brain of the hoogag. Okay. And that's a big horn. Okay. And it actually sounded in the street by the royal grand musician. Strict clamper rules required meetings to be held at any time before or after the full moon. <laughs> before or after. <laughs> now, much of the clamper business was taking in new members, prospects. Yeah, I'm sure. They were called poor blind candidates. And when they say they were taken in, this thing says they were really taken in. <laughs> but. So uh, uh, the, the only requirement for membership was a poke of gold dust. And that was all spent <laughs> at the, <laughs> buying the, drinks for everybody. At the uh, libation important. <laughs> right. So the amount depended upon the candidate's means. That's good. Uh, so in some cases, it was waived. Of course. Yeah. It says, okay, it says, whenever a new member was to be inducted, the Hugh Gag brayed, and the brothers headed for the Hall of Comparative Ovations. And that's the Libation Emporium. At the Libation Emporium. After they were all assembled, the Noble Grand Humbug, and then they list all these other ones, the Clamps Petrix, the Clamps Matrix, and they're all masked. And they begin the solemn ritual of initiation, complete with elaborate... Uh, Latin phrasing. <laughs> okay. The poor blind candidate, right shoe off, pants leg rolled up, and wearing a blindfold, was uh, then led into the hall and brought before the noble grand humbug. His eminence would ask the nervous candidate a series of questions, after which the newcomer was led around the hall, stopping at different points where he was lectured on various clamper policies and rules. Next, he was placed in the expungent stair chair, and it's a wheelbarrow, <laughs> padded okay. with a large cold, wet sponge, and taken over the rocky road to Dublin, and that's a ladder laid on the floor. Oh my As the poor blind candidate bounced over the rungs, the brethren sang out repeatedly, Ain't you glad to get out of the wilderness, get out of the wilderness, get out of the wilderness? That's bizarre. <clears throat> Upon a completion of his soul-cleansing ride, the, initi the initiate was asked if he believed in the elevation of man. When he said he did, he was immediately lifted onto a saddle and hoisted by block and tackle to the ceiling. Oh, my god! The elevation of man. The Literally. Yes. Often the elevation was accomplished by a blanket toss. Okay. Uh, where the candidates was bounced on a blanket. 
Scary. And the brethren held on all sides. Finally, it reads, sometimes after several hours of good-natured torture, the scales of darkness, that's the blindfold, was removed from the fledgling a member, and he was given the sacred staff of relief. And I actually held that in my hands the other yes, day. Yes, you did. I, I think the original one from Ezra Dane. Meanwhile, his new comrades sang to him the revered Clamper Ode. We'll take a drink with you, dear brother. And uh, was he ready for one? <laughs> After surviving the ritual ceremony, the new member was immediately appointed chairman of the most important committee. Uh, that was the title. <laughs> to instill a sense of clamper self-esteem. <laughs> so with this new title, he equaled all his brothers in rank. The noble grand humbug then completed the rite by explaining the importance of the order's clampatron, St. Vitus, uh, and the significance of the clamper's sacred emblem, the Staff of Relief. Uh, he closed by asking the ritual question, what say the brethren? To which the reply was satisfactory, <laughs> and the initiation was over. It says here there were no dues in Eclampus Vitus. And often the treasury consisted of only of the initiation fee put up by the evening's inductee, which was immediately converted to liquid asset <laughs> for the refreshment of the assemblage. Because the Hall of Comparative Ovations was usually a saloon, uh, the barkeep had the drinks dispensed before the scales of darkness came off the poor blind candidates. <laughs> so they were kind of fleeced. Uh, okay, it says here that McQualamy Hill, where it all started, Van Pelt Saloon served as the Hall of Comparative Ovations. And uh, until uh, another guy came and opened his hotel to the brain of the hoo gag, so that became... And I own Ringer Saloon. Uh, Amador City was Mooney's. And in Georgetown, Clamper Saloon keeper Pat Lynch. I'm, I'm trying to see where... Uh, they got Columbia in here somewhere. The Noble Grand Humbug, E.H. Van Decor. This is like in the Bible where they have uh, the list of who begat who. So right. for this is a list of all the bars the Clampers started. Uh, Stevens, uh, Georgetown in 1856, and then it burnt down. Stevens Young's American Saloon in Jackson uh, was a hall of comparative ovations. Now Dudley was the noble humbug in 1861. Here it is. To Columbia, they had two clamper halls in the 1850s. Soder and Marshall's Drinking Emporium, later called the Stage Driver's Retreat. That's oh. uh, the Jack Douglas. And uh, Albert Albertine Saloon, where the Clampers met downstairs in Darling's Oyster Parlor. And the only place that I could think that could be is uh, was now the Mercantile. Because okay. they had a faro club. or they, have, they had a little thing downstairs with a stage and oh, wow. stuff. It floods in the winter, though, now. So they don't have it open anymore. Um, Let's see. 
chapters uh, formed in nearly every town in California, and many community leaders and business owners found it to their advantage to join the order and follow the bray of the hoogag. Uh, because clampers were loyal and voted for their brothers. Uh, that makes sense. And uh, there was that uh, Eclampus Vitus numbered among its brethren such worthies as judges. Well, it's got a list here of some of the people that were uh, uh, newspapermen, sheriffs, bankers, mayors. So when... When E. Clampus Vitus was in full bloom, this supposedly was written in 1881. Uh, from the mid-1850s to about 1870, it was not unusual to find towns almost closing down at the call of the Hoogag. Shops, banks, saloons, homes, and diggings were temporarily abandoned when the summons of the sacred clarion shattered the stillness of the air. And uh, they had more uh, members in, Clampers had more members in residence than all the members of the Sirius Lodges combined. And it says, over the years, the secret Clamper grip passed between thousands of hands, even extending over the Sierras in 1859 to Nevada's Comstock Silver Mines. Uh, wow. Uh, and it actually has the hand grips and the salutes. Does it really? Yes, it does. Interesting. <laughs> so you can infiltrate into the highest <laughs> order of the clampers with just the right signal. You know, I, I think I'd rather get there the, the old-fashioned way. <laughs> <coughs> Some of the enlightened having the scales of darkness removed in the hall of comparative ovations were names not lost to history. Okay, here we go. Here's the list. This is like the Bible, set in the same order. Philip D. Armour. Uh, the, uh, uh, he was a butcher. And Armour. Yeah. No, I, I got gotcha. you. Uh, I think he, I have some Canadian bacon from Armour. Yeah, so it's the world's largest meat packing firm, or yeah. one, of, one of them. I think it's one of them. Okay, he was a clamper. All right. Okay, John Moeller Studebaker. Really? Uh, and uh, was one. And uh, his, you know, he made wheelbarrows in the mother love for the miners. Then when he saved enough money, he joined his brothers in a wagon shop in Indiana, and they manufactured the first gasoline-powered car. Car, that's right, 1904. John Hume, lawyer, uh, uh, state assemblyman and brother of Wells Fargo chief detective James Hume. And, uh, and then here's, here's some more, and uh, this is the way they work. It says, and, and also a young newspaper man named Sam Clemens, who lived for a time at the Jack Cass Hill Diggins. Um, the Clampers also claim Ulysses S. Grant, J. Perrin Point Morgan, Horace Greeley, and Horatio Alger as members. Wait a minute. All of these. J.P. Morgan. <laughs> Listen, it says all these historic figures visited the California Gold Rush country, but it is doubtful that they were ever really Clampers. Some Clamper membership claims are certainly suspect. 
such as Solomon, the Caesars, Henry VIII, Sir Francis Drake, George Washington, Andrew Jackson. Oh, I don't know. And in the rituals, I read Adam. (laughs) Might as well go all the way back. He's the alleged first clamper, clamp patriarch. Clamp, how how would you say that? A clamp. Clampriarch? Yeah, something, patriarch, right. Okay. So in its... uh, in its la- oh here's here it, okay in its lapses from buffoonery the ancient honorable order of Eclampus Vitus showed a benevolent side. Frequently and quietly the brethren performed charitable acts, and though they would whimsically state that the purpose of their society was to care for widows and orphans, especially the widows, uh, they were lauded for valuable services to the needy. They sponsored benefit shows and other fundraising events for the sick and destitute um, with no hoaxes involved. And when the mother love was struck with disasters, such as fires and floods that devastated whole towns, the clampers were among the first to lend a hand with rescues and rebuilding. Well, even, even today they sponsor the roadside cleanups. Uh, the strength and... Uh, Oh, it says, one should never overlook the fact that the Clampers were, in fact, a highly respected and honored organization. In spite of their well-deserved reputation as hard-drinking pranksters, they were a benevolent, serious side. And uh, the largest charitable organization at the time, assisting families of the killed or injured miners. Because mining accidents and injuries were common, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it wasn't a safe profession. No, and then if you're unable to work, guess what? You're, <laughs> you're, you're homeless. Out. Yeah. So uh, gifts of money or food mysteriously appeared. The donor was always anonymous. Uh, they would uh, clamper charity was unique with that, with few exceptions. It was always done anonymously, quietly, and without fanfare although there were rarely any question as to the benefactor's true identity. Uh, I want to get to the part where uh, did, I, did I not? And then it just goes into these histories of, uh, I mean, they trace themselves back to Adam themselves. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, but that's, I mean, a lot of, I mean, the Masons do that as well. Right, it says... Uh, the organization has a reputation as either a historical drinking society or a drinking historical society. <laughs> uh, that is well known. Okay, and then it says, becoming a clamper is not an easy task. Certainly a man may express a desire, but he must be invited. Clearly the prospect must have a genuine interest uh, in Western history uh, requirements have been listed as good sense of humor, a relatively thick skin, and a cast iron stomach, an open mind, a flair for the ridiculous, and an appreciation of absurdity. And if the invitation is accepted, the candidate is presented by his sponsor at a doings and must survive a time honored ritual at the hands of the grand, imperturbable hangman. Says if the invitation is only given once, and if refused, is never attended again. Attended again. 
Let's see. Where is the thing? Uh, I got these pages mixed up. They aren't. Uh, uh, so they would. Uh, their their uh, they'd get a skirt, one of those hoop skirts, right, and hang it up and says, "That's the flag we fight under." <laughs> a hoop skirt. Yeah, and then their uh, mascot was a goat, dressed up, you know, a decorated goat. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so that's. I don't. I don't want to get into the actual no, uh, no, 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 no rituals, and they they go on and so no, we're not going to do that. Uh, but I will share share this uh, with you. Yes, please. And no, then, the clampers. The clampers fascinate me. Yeah, I know. That's uh, because it's it's a secret society. It's like the biggest secret society around. And they're in plain sight. They are. I mean, you know, I was I was a. I was at the grocery store the other day. A guy walked right past me with a clamper. He had a clamper sweatshirt on. <clears throat> no, they're all around. I mean, they, they put ECV in their their um, license plates. I mean, they don't hide. Uh, well, it started here in the mother load. But they, they don't hide, but they do. Like, they don't hide. They're out, you know, everybody knows where they are, <clears throat> but nobody knows anything about them. I mean, you only know what they what they tell you. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And there must be a hierarchy. So well, when it was re- uh, uh, even though they said all clampers are equal members, but it's only certain clampers that seem to come out with their publications, right? Uh, on Western history, or on, I guess in the case of this one in 1881, the mysteries of the clamper universe, right? And uh, uh, I enjoy the language. Oh yeah, and. Uh, no, it was very artfully written, <clears throat> but that's just it. I mean, in the last in the last hour, I've heard more about the Clampers than I've ever seen anywhere else. I mean, they they are very mysterious. I'm sure if you ask the Clamper, it'd be like, oh, whatever. But they are they're very mysterious. I know many people who are actually fascinated by them because there's very little information about them. I mean, there is, but there isn't. Like. Everybody knows there's a grand humbug, but that's it. I, and I think the um, the chapters here are more open because yes. there's a chapter, the Yerba, Yerba Buena chapter. Uh, yeah, a, uh, San in, Francisco. Yeah, in San Francisco, uh, chapter number one. Uh, and I think that's still going strong. Oh yeah, no, it's still going strong. Uh, but it's up here where you see when when that guy brought into the. Uh, Historic uh, Research and History Center. Right. Uh, the Staff of Relief, and uh, he was dressed in his clamper clothes. And then Brad, who he's the coordinator of the center there, and uh, he had asked uh, another guy that was a clamper. He says, uh, uh, "He goes, no man, Ed dresses that way. That's his dress. That's what he dresses all the time." Well, I mean. <clears throat> Even in like Merced, I went to a to a kind of vintagey kind of shop because they're you know they're like you know antique malls, and there was a guy in the antique mall who specialized in tiki stuff. So of course we go there, you know, looking for looking for old weird tiki mugs and and other stuff. And they even had like a poo a poo poo platter, you know, mm-hmm. but 
on the ground floor that was upstairs on the ground floor there was somebody there who was who was selling some clamper regalia it was a vest a couple vests that were covered in the you know the tin plates tin wearing their tin wearing their tin and and it you know had patches on it i mean here it's very open they don't hide uh but that's my image of the clampers when they get ready for the mother load parade right and uh it just seems like there's hundreds of them. I mean, that's well, I'm sure exaggeration, a but I don't. Think I mean, so. marching in the parade. So they had the big that big flag, and actually took a film, climbed up under it, and filmed as they passed over. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, there was dozens of people carrying that flag. Oh, I'm sure. And then sure. they had that bus. It's like a drinking tour bus. Oh, really? Oh yeah, it's a double decker. Oh wow! With the top cut off. You know, so you can yeah, sit up there a in the open. Thing, yeah. yeah, tourism bus, and uh, they're all drinking. They have a designated driver, and they cruise. Yeah, I don't I haven't seen that in a long time. But but that's just the thing. They're they're very open. Like you you see them walking around with their shirts on or whatever, but nobody knows anything about them. Well, Everybody here. knows one, but nobody knows anything. You have to be a clapper to find out. That's what I love about it. It's it's one secret society where they actually kept it secret. It uh, really is actually secret. Like you can't find any information on it. It's uh, I guess it is our resident secret society. Oh, absolutely. It is, <laughs> it is the resident secret society of the gold of the you know the gold rush areas. <clears throat> not so, not just here, but I mean you know. But this is, this is where it originated. It probably from. has the heaviest population. That's why I think it's also not a secret here, because the, the concentration is so high, and I've I've heard that the the clamper groups here are a lot more hardcore about the clamper. Oh no, they are. Yeah, the other I mean, ones could, are less. I could tell severe. you. Uh, uh, so in. Um, there are these group of people up here, and and God bless them. I mean, they've been here for generations, really. Oh, yeah. And uh, they want to adhere to the old ways. And there was a big uh, uh, hee-haw between the, the state oh, and right. the volunteer fire department. Right. And they didn't want them responding to fires. See, when that bell rang, and they're all in the saloon. And then the bell rings, and they go to the fire, and they're all, you know, no. They said when they said no beer allowed in the firehouse, there was a problem. <laughs> yeah, the say either you gotta go or I, I gotta go, or the volunteer fire department, excuse me. But that's just the attitude. They adhere to these old ways, right? And <coughs> uh, and it's real prevalent. I did a documentary last year. I convinced the state of California that the street musicians in Colombia were an intangible cultural asset. And I proved they were playing the same music and the same style that had been passed down through generations. And there's still the music that was heard in the streets in 1857 is still the same music you hear on the streets today. And uh, it's amazing. And uh, the clampers, uh, the street musicians, kind it's of unique. these fringe people. Yeah, it's unique. Right. And, but they, uh, it, they are 
like living history is what keeps yes. that culture alive. And the clampers especially. Yeah, the very, clampers, yeah. They work very hard. And it, a lot of the plaques are for things that, that are arcane and obscure. And it's like you don't want, you know, you don't want that history to disappear. And so they protect it. But it takes a real history nerd is what I'm saying. And oh, they're, yeah. And, and if you... If clampers, there's no dues, um, and everyone has an equal title. Right. But at the same time, there's certain clampers that um, do their research. They take their uh, historical That's research. what I want to be. I want to be one of those clampers doing the research. Um, and so it's like any of these kind of esoteric fraternal orders, you got to come up with your publication. You know, like the Rosicrucians, sure. uh, you have to add to the knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and and it's like your doctorate. No, but they really do tangibly protect Western history. Yeah. I mean, it's no joke. And it only exists in the West. And I think even in our county, um, we have a lot of, uh, we have plaques everywhere. Oh, yeah. And uh, But some of them are put up by a chamber some are put up by the state. Yeah, but the fun ones are put up by ECD. Uh, but I think most. Remember just when we went on our little tour oh, yeah. and I said, okay, this one's put up by the Tuolumne County Chamber of Commerce. But then we hit two to two clapper ones to every one of right. another one. Yeah, and they fund it. They, they take care of all of it. Now, Columbia has a, uh, is a federally designated uh, landmark area. So they have a federal plaque. But still, you know, I, I have a great, I have a great deal of respect for their ability to protect Western history, and I have a great deal of respect for their ability to keep it secret, because they really do. I mean, you know, you you know more about the OTO than you do about the Clampers. I think that's true. It's yeah. true. You know, you want to read about the OTO rituals? It's like it's all over the internet. You know, if you want to learn about the AA, the Golden Dawn, you know, these groups that are supposed to be so secret, it's all over the internet. You want to look up the clampers and it's like, there's very little. I mean, there's a lot, but it's not really actionable. It's not like useful. So uh, I don't know. Uh, so, so I don't know how current this is, but they says currently there's over 40 chapters in California. Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Oregon, and Colorado. Yeah, I think there's one in Wyoming, too. And they says there's an offshore floating Wang chapter. <laughs> okay. And then there's the Cyber Wang chapter uh, in cyberspace. <laughs> All right. So it gets around. It does. Uh, <laughs> well, Cyber Wang cyberspace chapter, floating Wang chapter. Well, that's it. Okay. It's been it's been two hours. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, there's another one of uh, life's little mysteries. I hope I presented in a way that people kind of understood the importance of the clampers. I think so. Uh, to our identity as a yes. as a culture here in Tuolumne County. I think I think that the clampers are essential to the culture of Tuolumne. I mean, they are the embodiment in many ways of the culture here. And and you know. You had always talked about the clampers, but it wasn't until the other day when uh, Brad brought in this thing wrapped in velvet, this wow. red velvet, and 
uncovered it, and it was this bamboo staff with tin caps. So awesome. That's all signed that the different mining camps that rituals have been performed in. Yeah. And I uh, held it in my hands, as re- clampers have done for generations. And and then it, you know you felt it, and it became you became a part of it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was impressed. <laughs> I'd be impressed too. Yeah, and they didn't make me put on white gloves or anything. Uh, it's Tuolumne <laughs> County. <laughs> All right. Well, that was another fantabulous uh, episode of the Enigma Hours with me, Captain Tiki. Olaf Phillips, and I got Captain Dave over here, Dave Allen. All right. Exploring one of life's little mysteries. <laughs> uh, next next time we'll get in uh, this old publication that's, uh, uh, well, maybe not, I think maybe, uh, maybe up to 70 years old. I didn't check the date, but it lists the 21 wonders of Tuolumne. Oh, yeah, let's do that next week. All right. The 21 wonders of Tuolumne County next week. All check right. it out. Yeah, instead of the seven wonders, it's seven times three. <laughs> times three, the magic number. Wow. Seven and three, both magical, magical numbers. All right. 21 is a magical number because two plus one is three. Huh? <laughs> I got my numerology down. <laughs> Read my book. Okay. Right. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, we're uh, broadcasting here on KADLP 103.5 FM, Sonora, California. And streaming at KAAD-LP.org. You got to do it in that voice. It's just the way I'm used to doing it. <laughs> no, it's that. good. It's better better than what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you go to our site, it's coming. Make sure you scroll down and press the donate button. No, yes, I'm talking please. about KAD. Oh, KAD. Yes, our website's coming soon. We, we're working on we're, the content. We're right working now. on the content. We're twelmy.com. Oh yeah, right. we're twelmy.com's coming. But yeah, KAD-LP.org. Uh, hit the donate button. It helps. Every penny helps. Anyway, have a good night, peeps, and uh, enjoy some tiki music. <laughs>